being cranky. Mm -hmm. What? So the story, if you want to grab a Bible and follow along, so you can see that I'm not making this stuff up. Not, I don't do that. I, I make up stories, but not about the Bible, okay? <laughs> so I am a writer, but I don't, I don't make up things about the Bible. All right, so the story is found in the book of Judges, chapter 7. And we're really going to be, again, reading in uh, verse 8, okay? And so... Um, let me tell you real quick a little bit of a story from my history that will help you see this in perspective. When I was 25 years old, my wife and I had purchased a house, uh, so the bank really owned it, but we were paying on it. And we had two cars and car loans, and we had plenty of credit card debt. And um, I went with my dad down to Bowling Green and bought a lawnmower, riding lawnmower, because we had a pretty good piece of land, and we were going to have to mow it, and I didn't want to push a mower around anymore. I'd done that, the same house I uh, grew up in. And I'd done that when I was growing up, and I didn't want to do that anymore. And as I was driving home, I got to thinking to myself, okay, so I got a house, cars, job, my wife's got a job, I got a kid. Uh, 
just I had just found out that we had a second kid on the way, and I started thinking to myself that um, maybe I had everything that I ever thought I wanted, and yet I wasn't happy. And so I wondered what else might be out there. So I could get a boat. Well, I had a boat with my parents when I was a kid. That didn't work out very good. I wound up sitting on the side of the house and basically rotten because we never used it. And we camped a lot when I was a kid, and I didn't, and I didn't want an RV because I'd done my camping thing. If I wanted to camp, I'd just take a tent and go. It would just be a short period of time. I know RVs are really expensive, and, and some people get the value out of them, but I didn't think I would. So I started running out of things that maybe I would want, and I was fighting with my wife all the time. And so I thought, well, a great marriage would be good, but I don't know how to make that or buy that. And I was, felt like I was a little out of control of my kids. I said, well, a great kid would be good, but I don't know how to make that or buy that. And so I started thinking there had to be something more out there. So I said to my wife, why don't we go to church and see if there is something to do with God? Maybe God is real. Maybe religion is real. Maybe faith is real. And we can, we'd have to, and she's like, well, there's so many different ones. How can we know who is right? And I said, well, I don't know. We'll figure that out. We'll just, but, you know, just don't buy in too early and we'll go and see. And we'll see what, you know, we'll taste it a little bit, test it and see. And so we went to East Little Baptist Church. And take this phrase and then we'll go to the text, if you will. When we arrived at East Little Baptist Church, we arrived at the edge of the camp. Okay, now let's look at the text if we could. And I'm going to read, read as I said, beginning in verse 8. And I'm in ver chapter 7 of the book of Judges. Yeah, so if you're finding it, if, you, if you're not super familiar with how it's laid out, you're going to go like through the big books, Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy in the front, and then you know Joshua, Judges. So it's about six books, seven books in. Um, you can always use the table of contents. All right, so, and I do that sometimes. So it's no big deal. All right, so, and I'll back up as far as verse 7, but I won't, I'm not going to be able to explain as, as everything as we go through, but I just want you to see it. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. And so he's got 300 men, relatively small army. Okay. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. Midian is the army or the group of people that has come against the Israelites at this time. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I am going to give it into your hands. And so it sounds like God is saying, here's time to strike, right? Here's the time to go against the camp of the Midians with this measly 300 guys that I have left you with, okay? And I'm going to take care of it, basically. And if I, if I could say this much, uh, that God loves you, God loves me, God loves us all, and reasonably speaking, God has said, I'm going to take care of it. That's a pretty simple statement about how God feels toward us. He's going to take care of it, okay? But listen, God then says, speaking to Midian, he says, because I'm going to give it into your hands. Then he says, if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Pura, and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. And so we don't know if Gideon was afraid or not, but it says, so he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. So they went down to the edge of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley. Listen to this. Thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand of the seashore. Remember, Gideon's got 300 men that God left him with. And he goes down and he sees this vast camp with so many men and so many camels that they can't even count all the camels. And I'm thinking, this is not encouraging. Right? This is not going to be the thing that's going to motivate you to want to attack this army with 300 men. 
But listen to this. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midian camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. That was the dream that the man had had. His friend responded, This can be none other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into our hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed the trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. And so they all had a jar, a trumpet, and a torch. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. And when I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. Listen, it's a torch and a trumpet that destroys this army, not a sword, right? They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! While each man held his position around the camp and all the Midian's ran, Midianites ran crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords, and the army fled to Beth Shittah towards Zerah, and as far as the border of Abel Maholah near Tabath. And you don't really need to know where those places are, but understand that they attacked each other, the army attacked each other, and they fled before Gideon's 300 men. Okay? And you can say that the battle is won. Now, later, they will literally wipe this army out. If you remember when God sent away the large portion of the army and only kept 300 men, they all went to their homes. So then when this huge army flees, guess where they're fleeing? Right past the houses of all the men that God sent home. And they ambush and wipe out this entire huge army with camels so num numerous that they could not be counted like the sands of the seashore could not be counted. Okay, so here's what I want you to see in this text, and we're taking it from a slightly different angle today. And that, first of all, is that often God's representatives stand outside the camp. Often we are outside the camp. And God wants to send them into the camp, right? Joshua and Purah and the 300 men were outside the camp. And Joshua and Purah went to look. And God said, if you are afraid to go into the camp of the enemy, then go and look into the camp. And what you see will encourage you and you will no longer be afraid. And so sometimes we are outside the camp and God wants to send us into the camp. And I would say, first of all, what is holding us back from going into the camp? Well, we know it is doubt and uncertainty and fear. We know it is anger and, and, and heartache. We know it is laziness and sometimes greed because we don't want to give up what we have for, and we're afraid if we go into the camp, we will lose it. And oftentimes it is things that people cannot explain that keep them from going into the camp. How do you know when you are sitting on the edge of the camp? Well, when you are feeling that debate with yourself, that question of should I move forward in, in God and do what God would have me to do or, or should I cling to what I have? Do I fear that I will not be accepted? 
Do I fear that my message will not be accepted? Do I fear that as I give, I will come up empty? Do I fear that as I serve, my labors will be in vain? And when you feel on that edge there, that you're sort of fighting with skeptical nature, if you will, you know you are on the edge of the camp. But notice that it's not a request. When God tells Gideon, he says, get up and go, for I will give you the camp of the enemy today. I will give it into your hands. And he didn't say you will take it. He didn't say you will conquer it. You will overcome it. And that's what we do a lot of times. We think about as we're living at the edge of the camp. We think about, well, how am I going to overcome this? How am I going to put that out of my life? How am I going to do this when I am just me? And even we say God is on our side. God has said that he will be on our side. But we sit at the edge of the camp. We stand at, here, get that away from me. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Here, you can, take, you can play this one. Here. Sorry. You're okay. All right. So I, I'm used to it. <laughs> yeah, good call. I have lots of little ones, so I have five grand. Well, one's a stepchild, but I have four grand boys between the ages of six and Zayden, which is 10 months. So. Do you really? Wow. That's that's a pass of the beast right there. <laughs> so, okay. Well, you want all them to, to uh, come into the camp one day. So we'll, we'll, uh, See how the Lord shows us that, okay? So here we go. So when you feel that and you know, you start thinking, I don't think I can do it, think that's maybe where Gideon was, right? God even took away the bigger part of his army. God even took away that, the tens of thousands and left him with just the 300. That's like where we are, right? We're at the edge of the camp. We're like, I don't know if I can go in there or not. And if I go in there, I don't know what it's going to be like. <clears throat> but it's not a, a, a debate or a question. The Lord said, get up and go. But then our gracious God does this. He says, if you fear to go into the camp, go to the edge of the camp and look. And then what you see there will encourage you to go into the camp. He says, get down and listen. Well, what would you hear? What did Gideon hear? If you get down and listen into the camp of the enemy, what would you hear? Well, the first one is you would hear God already working. God is already working in the place that God is leading you to go in the body of believers that you're supposed to be in, in the evangelistic position that you're supposed to be in, in the position of service that you're supposed to be in. God is already working there. In fact, the fact is, if we never shared the gospel, let me go aside just for one second, if the command was to share Christ, it was simply that, to tell people about Jesus. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ here today, you know that is the command for you. You're supposed to tell people what you know, right? And if it was simply that, we took that away from everything else, and that's all we're supposed to do, and it is largely what we're supposed to do based on the New Testament, but if that's all we're supposed to do, I want you to understand, if we never did that, God is already working doing that. One of my great favorite stories of evangelism is about a woman who was fleeing the tsunami in India and she was a devout Muslim, but she knew there was no hope in Allah. And so as she fled and was about to be washed over by a 60 foot tall wave of the ocean and all the stuff that it was carrying with it, cars and pieces of buildings and trees. And as she was about to be washed over, she cried out to the Christian God and she said, if you will save me, I will serve you for the rest of my life. She was a devout Muslim for her whole life, and no one had told her about Jesus specifically, but she had heard about the Christian God and that maybe there was hope in him, right? And she's cried out, and she said, God, if you will save me, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. And God said in her heart, she says, God said in her heart, go to the church, go to church, go to the church. And her idea of the church was the building. And so she ran to the Christian church building, and she fell on her knees praying to the Christian God. Now, the Christian church building was on lower ground and by all rights should have flooded. And the mosque where she might have ran to was on higher ground and, by, and lots of Muslims were running there thinking they would be safe because it was on higher ground. 
The mosque flooded and destroyed them all. The Christian church never did flood and she survived. And she is out there to this day. It's been about, what, 12 years since that tsunami. And she travels the world as a Christian evangelist telling people that God saved me. When no Christian came into my life and told me about Jesus, God told me about himself. Now, I've since learned that Jesus was the way. I've since learned the New Testament. And I'm telling you today, this is the God who saved me. And when, if you look into the camp where God is calling you to go, Across the lines that you feel afraid to go across, if you look in there, you will see God is already working. And, if you, and God is not inviting you to go and conquer the enemy by yourself. He's saying, come with me. But the fact is, he goes to the edge of the camp with you, and then he is also already in the, in the camp fighting there. He's already at work there. And he was already at work in the camp of the, of the uh, Midians and the Amalekites. So you would see God working there. And then you would see a God-arranged victory. It was a Midianite that declared, right? Yeah, a Midianite that declared, that's the sword of Gideon. He's going to come and wipe out our camp. No matter how, they could, when the enemy is camped in the tens of thousands, don't think that he is not in fear. When the enemy is camped against you in great forces, and you look at this and go, this is an insurmountable thing. Crossing that line, it's insurmountable. I don't know how I could ever do it. I have, in my, in my church, I have three men Three men, adult males, who are, let me see, let me get this right, all married with children or grandchildren, and they're all diagnosed with PTSD. You know what PTSD does to you? One of the many things that PTSD does to you is it makes it so you cannot feel comfortable in a crowd of people. Yet these three men are faithfully in my church every Sunday, hearing the word, worshiping God, singing, serving, and they go out and talk to people about Jesus and serve, even though they are diagnosed, and they have it. I see the symptoms, but they, and they looked at the church, and they went, I, I, I don't know if I can do that. And God said, I want you to go and do that, and so they did. Right? So God has already arranged the victory. A psychologist will tell you it's not possible. A financeologist or whatever, a financier will tell you it might not be possible, right? There you go. People will tell you it might not be possible when you stand on the edge of camp. Your own fears will tell you it might not be possible. But the fact remains that God has already arranged the victory. If you could just go to the edge of the camp and look in there, you will see that God has already arranged the victory. And then third, you will see with your human fleshly eyes, and it is a great blessing that God allows us to do that, because he doesn't have to allow us to do this, right? But you will see with your human fleshly eyes that the outcome is predetermined. Now, in your heart, you can feel and hear that God has, that the outcome is predetermined, right? In your heart, you know that God has already predetermined. God is a great storyteller, and he has already told the end of the story, right? But with your human eyes, you see the barriers, you see the difficulties, and you start thinking, I don't know how am I going to get from here to where God says I'm going to be. But when you go to the edge of the camp and look in, the outcome is predetermined for your benefit. So what are you going to do about it? When I was at East Toledo Baptist Church them years ago, I, I, I realized without ever having heard this story or seen it, because I didn't get this until probably 10 years after that, that I was at the edge of the camp. And I could see believers, and I look at them and they're like, they claim the name of the Lord. They're following Jesus, and they're singing in the congregation, you know, and they're serving the food, or they're, they're cleaning up, or they're preaching the gospel, or they're, they're doing what God has called them to do. And I saw them, and I'm like, yes, but that's not me. I can't be like that. Because here I am over here, and I've got this problem, and this problem, and this problem, and this problem, and I've, I'm, and I've done everything I possibly can do to make my life right, and it comes up empty. I can't be like them, right? Except that actually what you would find out if you would go and look into the camp with open eyes is you find out that most of them were just like that too. 
They came to the edge of the camp, having done whatever they could do in their strength and their ability, and realizing it wasn't enough. They came to the edge of the camp, and they looked in, and they found out. And that's why God, pardon me, that's why God tells us to proclaim what we have seen and heard so that others may have fellowship with us and our fellowship with God, the Father, and the Son, Jesus Christ, which happens to be the key verse for New Heights. That's why God does that, because, turn, turn it off, because then we see into the camp, right? When you tell me what God has done in your life, now I start thinking, well, maybe God can do that in my life. That's why we're to proclaim what God has done. So, what you're supposed to do then at the, when you're standing at the edge of the camp is claim God's promises. Gideon just needed to do what God had called him to do. That's all he needed to do. But he was afraid a little bit or he was concerned a little bit. And so he went as God instructed to the edge of the camp. Guess what? You're sitting at the edge of the camp today. It is possible for you to look into that thing that God is calling you into right now. For you to say, look, I see what God wants me to do there. I know what it is God's calling me to do, but I see that it's across a barrier that I cannot myself breach. I'm not sure if I can get there or I'm afraid what will happen when I do. You're going to have to find the camp and then claim the promises of God. Well, the Bible tells us what God sees as the camp for us. And there's a lot of texts that I could go to, but I'm just going to read a couple real quick here for you to give you an idea. And the first one's in Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1. So Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is writing, and I'm I'm beginning reading in verse 18, and this is what Paul writes, as soon as I find it, 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance, that's God's glorious inheritance for us, what God is trying to give us in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. So did you hear the inheritance the mighty power that God wants to give us. See, what we're thinking is we're looking at, let's say it's our addiction or our relationship struggles or our finance struggles, or we're looking at whether or not we can get involved in a church, or we're looking at whether or not we can preach the gospel or share the witness. And we're thinking, I don't know if I can do that. We're thinking that's the thing that God wants from me. God wants me to share. Listen, God does not want you to share the gospel so that people can get saved. That's not the truth. I know that that's what happens when we share the gospel. But that is not why we share the gospel. God wants you to share the gospel because partly that is what you are created for and partly because that is what he is doing. And if you want to be with him. Last Saturday, the boys and I, my boys, uh, I have two teenage boys. My one just turned teenager, 13. My boys and I went out to do the leaves in the yard. So I get out of the bed in the morning. I look at the yard. I'm thinking like the leaves need to be done. And I said to myself, I said, I could send the boys out in the yard. I have a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old, and they're both strong and healthy and capable. So I could send them out in the yard to do the leaves. And I thought, you know, they've worked hard all week. They've been running all week. I said, maybe they don't need to go out in the yard and do the leaves, but the leaves need to be done. And I said, so I could go out in the yard and do the leaves. And then they, I just let them play for a while, whatever, and then if I need help, I'll call them later, that kind of thing. So I could go out in the yard and do the leaves. 
And I said, but I've had a long week and that's a lot of leaves. And I said, so we'll go out in the yard and do the leaves. Now we had a heck of a good time in the yard raking the leaves and my younger boy was running and diving like a football, Pete Rose football slide into the leaves when we got the big pile made. So we had a heck of a, and get this, while I'm out in the yard doing the leaves with my two sons and we're working and we're about maybe a third of the way done with the job and we're, we worked up a sweat, we stripped down to our inner layers, you know, because even though it was a little chilly out and we've, our muscles are burning, I'm like, my shoulders are burning and I'm loving it. While I'm doing that, my deacon shows up to help me do my leaves. Didn't call him, didn't ask. One of my sons says, did you call him and ask for help? Because we needed help. And I said, we did. I said, but... But uh, no, I didn't call and ask him. He probably just knew it needed to be done. He showed up to help. So my deacon showed up to do the leaves. But when my deacon came to do the leaves, guess what? He didn't come alone. He brought his son, who's 20-some years old and married, and he brought his wife. And she come and helped do the leaves. And they brought their son, who's only like six, and he come and helped do the leaves. And so we got a body of people doing leaves, and we did the first one-third of the leaves in about an hour and a half. And we did the entire remaining two-thirds of the leave, leaves in just over half an hour. God is already at work. He has already arranged the victory. He's not sending you into the camp. That's the problem. We think God's sending us into the camp. And why would we think that? Well, when Jesus went into the camp, they crucified him. That's why we think that. But actually, that's our mistake. When Jesus was being crucified, he was being crucified in our place. He took that so we didn't have to. See, there was no one alive that was holy and righteous like Jesus was. There was no one without sin like he was. There was no human being that could die for everybody else. So Jesus came as God in the flesh and he died on the cross in our place. And now he says to us, let it stand. Let it stand. Let your salvation stand. See your salvation. See that it lies inside the camp. And he says, submit to God's will, engage, go in and do what God has called you to. Go in and never quit. Go in and do the job. Hear me, go in and take the risks. Hear me, go in and die. Oh, she's about to again. She's just, she's just a young walker, that's all. She's just a young walker. Philippians 3 is the final verses I'll go to. Whoa. She wanted to go back to the singing part. They like the singing part. Philippians 3, and I'm going to read from chapter 3, verse, beginning verse 13. This is what it says. Paul's talking about himself in Acts 12. He says, not that I have already obtained all this, talking about his righteousness and his perfection and whatever, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. You are at the edge of the camp. When you are wondering if, I can, if you can do what God has called you to, you are at the edge of the camp. When you are wondering how you will persevere over the barriers that lie before you, you are at the edge of the camp. 
But God didn't ask you to go in without Him, and He didn't ask you to go in and win the victory. God has already won the victory, and He will take you in. He will go in with you. He will give you the wisdom. Notice Gideon didn't just walk in and say, hey, we're 300 guys here, and we're coming to kick your butt. No, God gave him the wisdom on how to show them. And notice the victory. This is the conclusion then. Notice what happens. You go to the edge of the camp. You see what God has called you to. You start thinking, I'm afraid to go. And then God shows you that he has already begun to arrange the victory, that he is already at work there. And you think, okay, I think I can go. And you decide to go. You decide to take on that which God has given you. You decide to take the risk to go for it, right? Notice what happens. The enemies begin to fight against each other. They're too busy fighting against each other. Their fear, their doubt, their chaos and confusion. We think about this in the terms of spiritual realm. Devil's real, demons are real, evil spirits are real. Okay? And there is a hierarchy, one on top of the other. This one's in charge of that one, is in charge of that one, and so on. That's what we see in the Bible. When we go into the spiritual realm and begin to fight, we expect them to fight back against us. A big man comes into your house and he tries to take your stuff. I hope you're going to fight back against him somehow or other. Right? Whatever you can do. When we go into the house of the enemy, we try to take his stuff, lost souls. We try to defeat sin, try to overcome evil, try to be good and kind and merciful and loving toward our neighbor, do what God would have us to do. You think, well, he's going to fight back against us, right? That is not what happened in this story. This is not the example that God gives us. When we put up a strong front and we say, okay, I'm going with God into the house of the enemy and I'm going to defeat the enemy. I'm going to overcome and become victorious. I'm going to have victory in God. And as Paul says, we press forward and do what God has given us to do. Not just anything we want or not lustful or greedy or anything like that, but we go forward to do what God would have us to do. The enemy does not even stand up against us. He begins to fight and squabble against himself. Now he, you know why? Because he sees the ultimate defeat, just like that man. It has been proclaimed in their camp already. He sees the ultimate defeat. And they begin to fight amongst each other for the scraps. He sees the ultimate defeat and begins to fight against each other for the scraps. We are not to settle for the scraps. Don't sit outside the camp and settle for the scraps. Go for it. Do what God is calling you to do. Do what's right. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord God. Be merciful and kind and just in this world. Overcome evil. God has already arranged the victory. God is already at work doing that. You only need to join him in it. And you say, but I'm afraid to. And this is the great blessing. God allows us to come to the edge of the camp. And see how he has already done it. Let me tell you two quick stories and I'm done. No. First one's about our church. You know, we, we decided to plant a church. Uh, it felt like the Lord was calling us to do that. And, um, and we began in Bible study. And we got a few more people together. And we're not a lot of people now, but we have a big impact. And we get this building in our sights. feel like God wants us to get this building. And this is what they said. They said, uh, it's a school building. And they said, you'll never be able to get it. It belongs to TPS, and they're already in the process of tearing it down. You'll never be able to get the building. And I said, well, maybe they would want to, instead of tearing it down, give it to us or sell it to us or something. They can make a little money, you know. And I'm thinking we might have to go to the bank and get a loan, buy it for $100,000, you know, whatever. We didn't have any money. And so we go there, and uh, we asked the school, and they said, well, no, we couldn't do that. 
We don't want it to fall in the wrong hands or whatever. We're already in the process of tearing it down. State's paying to tear it down, so it's not costing us anything to tear it down. So we couldn't give it to you. And I said, well, we really want it, and we think it would be better. And we got a petition in the community. We went door-to-door -door and asked people to sign a petition asking them to at least consider it. And they said, well, here's what we'll do. There's only three ways we can give away property. One is to sell it by auction. We don't want to do that because we don't want it to be a charter school. One is to give it to a charter school. We don't want to do that because we don't want it to be a charter school. And the last one is to give it to the city of Toledo. And we're at, they were at odds. They've been fighting over money for 10 years with the city of Toledo. And they said, so we normally would not do that. But if you can get somebody at the city of Toledo to ask us very nicely, then we'll sell you or give you the building. So we went to the mayor's office. And initially they said, no, we couldn't do that. You know, we've been in friction with the school system for a long time. We really couldn't do that. And they said, you can call and talk to Deputy Mayor Tom Carruthers and see what he says. So we called Tom. Tom said, yep, yeah, you know what? I will call and ask them for you. So he calls the school system and he says, after 10 years of fighting, he says, because what happened was when the school system, when Toledo allowed charter schools to come into Toledo, the budget for Toledo Public Schools went in the negative for 10 years straight. So they were, they were upset about that because they were had a negative budget for 10 years. So anyway, the point is, he, said, he calls them up and he says, would you please give this building to New Heights Fellowship? And they said, well, we'll give it to you, and you can give it to New Heights Fellowship. Now we have the city of Toledo giving a building to a church. And you've heard about this thing called separation of church and state and how people get all worked up about it. Nonetheless, almost three years later, they gave that building to New Heights Fellowship for free. It cost us $43 to transfer the deed. It's a $2 million building. Okay? So praise the Lord. He was already at work. He was already arranging it. If we had never gone and asked, if we had never done the work, we never could have gotten the building. Right now, fast forward a little while into the whole process. We're trying to meet in the building, and what had happened was when they were going to tear the building down, they cut the electrical lines of the street. They just cut them off at the ground. So now the lines are going to have to be pulled out all the way from the building. It's 106 feet all the way from the building to the street. They're going to be pulled out of the ground and replaced with new lines. Get an estimate: twenty-six thousand dollars. We don't have that kind of money. We have maybe three thousand dollars in the bank. So we're just a little church. We're still not that big. We don't have a lot of money, but we do a lot. So I'm going with 26. That kills the deal. It's not going to be able, not going to happen. So we go and get all the engineer drawings, everything set, but we have $26,000. No way we can do it. So I said, oh, if only we had an electrician who would come and donate some time and help us figure it out, try to get it cheaper. And I said that to my brother-in-law. And he said, well, just yesterday I ran into Joe Chris for Chris Electric. You know, we used to be really good friends. We used to play games together and stuff like that. He said, and he gave me his number. You can call him. one hurt too. So Joe Chris comes on. He looks at the job. Long story short, he gets some people to donate some supplies. He donates his labor, including he's going to donate renting a, a, a machine to pull the cable out of the ground. And he comes out on the Saturday, before, one week before we're supposed to do this job. And we figured out it's going to, by now it's going to cost us a lot less. We still don't know how much. I said, Joe, you got to give me a price, how much it's going to be, because I, don't, I can't risk that you're saying it's going to be way more money than we have. We just don't have much money. So he said, he said, well, let me come look at it. So he goes up to the box and he grabs one of these, disconnects it from the box, and he grabs a wire and he pulls to see if there's any movement in it. And it moves a couple feet. And he's like, that's weird. There must have been quite a bit of slack there. So he backs up about 10 feet. And he's like, that's way too much to just be slack. I'll bet it broke in the ground. It's probably the wire broke or something that was never connected right or whatever. It's a 106-foot run to the street. So he pulled 10 feet of, the first, of that 106-foot. And so he turns around and he holds it like this and he just starts walking. And he pulls out 106 feet of electrical cable by hand, by himself, no machine needed, out onto the ground in the side yard of the church building. He said, that does not make any sense. That, that, that line's got to have been in the ground for 20 years. Even if it's in a conduit, it would have sealed together with the other lines, melted the plastic, bonds together. So that can't happen. 
So he goes back and he grabs another one. He said, well, just see. And he walks it all the way out. And he said, well, we can't take the last one out because we need that one to pull the new one through when the time comes. I'll be here Saturday at 9 a.m. Get me some men. We'll get this job done. $2,300. Money, which we have. Okay? What I'm saying is, God is already fighting in the fight. God is already working in the camp of the enemy. You just have to go in there. I've seen it in spiritual warfare. I've cast demons out of people. I've, I've seen people be miraculously healed. Stella, who used to work here. 23 spots of cancer discovered in her torso. She came in here. We stood in that doorway right there and prayed. We broke down in tears. She went to the doctor the next week because they were going to biopsy the spots to find out for sure if they were cancer. And when they got there, all 23 spots were gone. Not biopsy, not cancer, but gone. And, and she had just had a PET scan the week before or whatever. So what I'm saying to you is God is already working the fight. Now we, we tell those stories, we get all excited and whatever, but now take it down. Somebody in your life needs to be told about Jesus. You need to get into church fellowship and serve. You need to do what you can for your neighbors. And you're saying, well, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. When I was 25 years old, I realized I had done what I could do to make my life better. And I thought I started questioning God. I went into the camp. I sat there for six months. I listened to what the pastor was saying. I dissected every verse. I said, is that what it says? Is that what it really means? I debated him a couple of times on lightweight things because I was, I was not knowledgeable. So I couldn't do anything heavy. But I asked him about, you know, maybe did Jesus pass out on the cross instead of die? And he showed me how that's not possible. All those little things. And from the edge of the camp, I was able to see with my human eyes that I needed to cross the line and go into the camp and begin to serve the Lord. Now, now 20 years later, I'm still serving the Lord. I've become the director of the Life Station, pastor of New Heights. I'm not rich, and I probably never will be. But I serve, and I'm taken care of, and I'm glad to be doing it, and I'm glad to be here today, and I'm glad to invite you to the edge of the camp today. Now let me invite you into the camp. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you so much.